morning, church. Everybody well? You have a good Thanksgiving? Yes? If you're like me, I feel like I need to go on like a like one week fast. Are you with me? I feel like, like I feel 400 pounds right now. <clears throat> I just ate so much food, no self-control. Uh, judge me all you want, okay? Um, take it up with Jesus. But man, it's like the desserts and like all the cakes and pies and cookies and all that stuff. That, man, that just did me in. But I hope that you had a great time with uh, friends and family, or maybe you're by yourself because you don't like your friends or family. Um, that's okay too, but I hope that you had a good time of rest. Good college football yesterday. Um, great day, rivalry week. Um, unless you're a Clemson fan, sorry. Okay, I feel your pain as a Tennessee fan. I feel your pain. Uh, but man, uh, it's so awesome, so great to see you uh, on this kind of dreary, wet uh, Sunday. Uh, last week, if you were here, we kicked off this series titled The Return of the King, where we are looking uh, at the second uh, coming of Jesus. So last week, Corey, our director of students across all campuses, did a great job really looking at Matthew and how Jesus foretold and said, hey, no one knows the time or the place, or not place, but the time or the hour um, of when Jesus returns. And so today we're actually going to look in, into Revelation chapter 19 of the actual second coming of Jesus, how he will come, what it will look like. And oftentimes when we think about Jesus's return, there's a lot of different things that come to mind and a lot of different ideas or things we've heard or read. Um, I remember, this is going to date me a little bit, um, I remember when I was um, a senior in high school, uh, I had just graduated, I was actually, believe it or not, I was in a Christian band, all right? So I played drums, and you're like, you do? Yes, I do, uh, or I did, I haven't played in years, um, maybe one of these days I can get up there and throw down a beat and y'all be like amazed. But uh, I was in a, a Christian band and we played this venue on New Year's Eve uh, um, when it was about to turn uh, the year 2000. Do you remember this? Okay, if you're uh, around and you remember Y2K was like, we're all gonna die. The computers are gonna blow up. Get your water, hide your kids, hide your wife. You know, everything's gonna happen. Uh, it's gonna be crazy. And uh, our band... Uh, you might have heard of them. They're kind of popular, called Third Day. Um, just kidding. I wasn't in Third Day. Y'all bought me for a second. No, I wish it was that cool. We were in a band, and our band name was Layman's Term. How lame is that, okay? And so, uh, but we played this venue on New Year's Eve. It was about, uh, you know, we had to play through midnight. And so as a Christian band, we thought it would be appropriate to play REMs. Uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, okay? So we played that. And then in return, we played a song, you might've heard of this, uh, by a female artist known as Jackie Velezquez is her name. And she sang this song, People Get, I think it was called People Get Ready. People get ready, Jesus is coming soon. We'll be going home. Yeah, Crystal. So we, uh, man, it was just an incredible time um, where we played this because we didn't know what was going to happen. We honestly, I remember, I'm like, I think Jesus is going to return. You know, like he's coming, he's coming back right now. So we have all of these kind of thoughts and ideas, but uh, when it comes to the second coming, I kind of want to build up kind of where we're at and what's going to happen in context wise before we look into Revelation 19. Now, if you were to take a survey of Jesus's life, you were to look at the New Testament, there's really seven main events that take place in the life of Jesus that should, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, that really helps shape 
the doctrine of Christianity and our faith. The first event being the incarnation of Jesus, that God comes incarnate, born um, of a virgin named Mary, God incarnate, the incarnation, Jesus is born, in a little manger, we're about to celebrate this in a few weeks. The incarnation is the first huge event where the word becomes flesh. The second event that's huge in Jesus' life is his baptism. At this moment when Jesus is baptized, more than just being baptized, it is at a point where once he comes up out of the water, God audibly confirms and proclaims, this is my son. So it's a huge moment that we see in the gospels that Jesus says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Then the third event is after that, after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by Satan. Um, and it's a, a huge, um, I guess, uh, sim- let's say simple, that's not the right word. It's just, uh, this moment where Jesus is tempted by Satan and goes and is tempted by everything that you and I are tempted by. And he overcomes that. And he overcomes that and he beats Satan really by knowing scripture, telling scripture and defending Satan off. So it's a huge moment in Jesus's life. He starts his ministry. There's a lot of miracles and different things. The fourth huge event is his crucifixion. He's arrested, he's crucified. And we know that in scripture, we see that the reason Jesus had to die on the cross is because of our sin, your sin and my sin for his blood to be shed. And so he was crucified. He paid the penalty, the death that you and I should have paid um, is through that. Then the fifth big event is his resurrection. So we know three days later, he conquers death, conquers sin, raises from the dead. All right, so we, we see that. Number six is Jesus's ascension. So if you remember, after some time here on earth, seeing um, about, um, f- there's like over 500 eyewitnesses, Scripture says Jesus returns to his Father where he sits at the right hand and he reigns and rules uh, with God. And number seven is the second coming. Now, this, when we talk about the second coming of Jesus, this is a, a topic that has captivated the hearts of believers and unbelievers for many, many years. There's a lot of different questions When is it happening? What will happen? What does it look like? Are we in the end times now? What's gonna gonna happen to my family? What's gonna happen to me if Jesus returns right now? What is going to happen? And for many of us, once again, this is a generational thing, you might have grown up reading the Left Behind book series. You with me? And then you saw that most incredible award-winning movie, Left Behind, because it has Kirk Cameron in it, right? Um, that's a joke, okay? Uh, no offense to Kirk Cameron and Growing Pains. That was good, but <laughs> Left Behind wasn't the best movie in the world. But we kind of have this idea of what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, and what we need to do as believers is to look at Scripture and let Scripture paint the picture of what um, Jesus' second coming is going to be all about. Because when Jesus returns, he's not coming as a ghost. It's not going to be just a bunch of angels. Man, he is coming in bodily form, and it will be visible, and it will take place. And the thing that happens is that when it comes, um, when Jesus comes, it's not some fairy tale. I want you to think it is going to be an epic battle. It is going to be a moment in earth's history 
that will be something that really I think there should be a movie of. I mean, it's like something from like the movie 300 or like an epic battle of like Lord of the Rings for all you sci-fi guys, you know. It is this incredible moment that we see in Revelation that we have to understand is going to take place. It's not just some made-up story in the future. Now, to give us some context before we read chapter 19, what we see through Revelation 6 to 18 is what is known as the tribulation or the great tribulation. Now, there will be a time on earth where all hell breaks loose. It will be a time, lots of death, famine, um, natural disasters. A lot of different things are taking place that is evil. During this time, there will be the mark of the beast. The Antichrist will raise uh, up his armies and will begin to rule on this earth. So it is a horrible, horrible time. And so all of this will take place for approximately seven years, according to some Old Testament prophecy. And then Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation. Now, let me just kind of throw this out there. I know it's a lot of information. Go study it on your own. I just want to do it justice in this because there's a lot of different views on this. There's, um, I'm going to throw this out there. You can write it down on the side and study it yourself. There's different views on the tribulation and what, when exactly Jesus returns or how he returns, meaning this. So there's the pre-tribulation view which would say that Jesus comes back in the clouds. He doesn't actually come back on the earth first. He actually comes in the clouds first and he will gather his church. He will gather believers, snatch believers up, take them to heaven, and then the tribulation will happen and then Jesus will return at the end of seven years. That's known as pre-trib, okay? Now you also have mid-trib, which sounds just like it is, that in the middle of those seven years of great tribulation and distress, by the halfway point, Jesus returns. So as believers, we face a little bit of the suffering, but Jesus returns, he gathers his church, and then he'll come back. Or post-trib, that it doesn't matter if you're a believer or unbeliever, everybody on earth will face great tribulation, and then when Jesus returns, he returns once and for all. Now, there's also premillennialist, postmillennialist, amillennialist. Go, go geek out yourselves, okay? If you want to know my, my stance or you want to have some questions, we can talk um, later. I want you to form that because at the end of the day, it's not a salvation issue. Jesus is coming. And what we're going to look at is I don't want us to get into the weeds because the purpose of Jesus' return is really twofold. One, to restore all of creation. When he comes back, we're going to talk about this next week. He's going to establish a, a new heaven and a new earth. And so when he comes back, it'll be exactly as he designed it from the very beginning in Genesis. And he will establish his kingdom um, as he intended. But the second is the purpose of Jesus' second coming is to reward the redeemed. Those of us who know and follow and trust and have surrendered to Jesus. But to also punish the wicked. And that's a sobering thought. And what we're going to see this morning is the differences between Jesus' first coming and his second um, coming. But let's turn to our, uh, in our Bibles to Revelation uh, 19. It's the last book in the Bible. Also be on the sc screen or hopefully on your phones if you have the Bible app. But we're going to be in Revelation 19. And so let's read this together and then we'll kind of break, uh, break it down and walk through it a little bit. 
Um, remember, this is the Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos, right? Persecuted. They said, let's just send him there to die as they did uh, many people. And this is what um, John writes. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Now let's just pause. For some of you, you might, might be thinking, are there going to be animals in heaven? Well, we at least know that there's going to be horses, and dogs, okay? Not cats, all right? <laughs> now, I have no biblical proof of that. That's just perspective. Um, but I went to seminary and I am ordained. So I don't know if you are, but um, no, just kidding. But we at least know there's gonna be a white horse, all right? And, and it says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. So when he returns, John's saying the heavens open, Jesus is sitting on this white horse, it's coming in, and, um, and he is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now you might be saying, okay, who are these armies of God? Are these angels? No, they're actually believers. They're saints. Those who have gone before us, who surrendered their life to Christ, who have died and are now living and spending eternity in heaven with Christ, with God, he is, they are the army. So when Jesus comes in, faithful and true on this white horse, the armies of pre, uh, or the army, um, individuals who were believers on earth are now gathered with him. It's not just some angels or some majestic beings it's actual believers. You tracking with me so far? All right. So the army comes in. They're in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him. They had white horses. So everybody gets a white horse. It's like Oprah, okay? You get a white horse. Anyway. Um, from his mouth comes a sharp sword uh, with which it strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Nice tat, okay? Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse 
and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Doesn't, don't you want that to be a movie scene? It, it is scary, but at the same time, it is so awesome to see Jesus return with such great authority and power to, uh, to then overtake the Antichrist, the demons, and evil of the world. And so just to kind of put this in perspective as we're reading this, I'm a visual learner, all right? So I want to throw up a picture. Um, this is where believe, scholars believe that the battle of what we call Armageddon is going to happen, this battle that we just read about. So at the end of the seven years of tribulation, there will be this battle that all the dictators and rulers, everybody in the world will be involved somehow. But in this valley, there will be this incredible final battle. And spoiler alert, Jesus wins, okay? But during this, all the enemies of God are gonna raise up, being led by the Antichrist. And they will raise up and oppose Christians and Jesus to really make war with him. And so when he returns, it will, there will be this battle in this place. So there's not an actual place in Jerusalem known as Armageddon, but it is referenced in scripture and to the best of scholars' ability, there is um, a place called Har, which means hill, and this valley right here is Megiddo or Megiddo. And so this hill over the valley is where this will take place. This will be a gruesome battle. This is not Jesus coming and saying, you know what? Everybody needs to ask for forgiveness. I'm gonna give you one last chance. You know, just, could y'all just worship right now? It's not gonna be like that. He's coming, and when he comes, it will be with great authority, and we're gonna see this, and with great judgment. And as I said, it will be bloody and gruesome. And he will come to settle once and for all. Now think about this. Jesus' first coming, he took on the sin. He became sin. He became you and I, our sin. He took that on uh, as a suffering servant. This time, he's coming to finally defeat sin and evil and demonic beings and the Antichrist. And so it's not gonna be pleasant. So when he returns, this is what Corey was talking about, we need to be ready we need to be aware. And as I mentioned, Jesus wins. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look through this passage of how Jesus defeats the enemies uh, during this battle, but also how it translates to the battles that you and I face every single day. Because you and I, we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. We have things that we battle every day. Maybe what we battle is some addiction. Maybe we battle some secret sin. Maybe we battle um, not having patience or we battle anger or we battle you know, bitterness towards a family member we just saw on Thanksgiving that we wanted to kill. You know, There's a lot of different things that we battle with and maybe we just battle with doubt or fear. And I want you to see this this morning that as Jesus conquers and wins and becomes victor of this final battle. If he can claim victory over this, surely he can claim victory over the battles you and I face right here, right now. And so what we're gonna see is how he wins this battle and how he can fight 
our battle. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point this morning. He wins battles by his nature, meaning by the character of Jesus, by who he is in the very essence of him being Jesus, the son of God, he uh, wins and defeats his enemies. As John is writing, he says in verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold, there's this white horse, one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Now, all eyes are on Jesus. He is the star of the show. Now, he was the star of the show um, when he first came and during his ministry and everything. But really now in this final battle, he is, this is it. And if you think about it, this comparing and contrasting, his second coming is so much different than his first. When Jesus first came, think about this. He came, he entered into Jerusalem, what we know as Palm Sunday, riding on a what? A donkey. Now he comes the second time, he is riding in on a white horse. One that symbolizes victory and war. I'm just going to tell you right now, if we're at war and I ride in on a donkey, no one's going to take me seriously. They'd be like, nice Eeyore, <laughs> you know? But with great authority, Jesus returns in this, riding this white horse. Now, I don't know a lot about horses. Someone told me first service that white horse is usually not the strongest. Now, it is considered endangered. And so I don't really know why it's white other than the fact that it symbolizes victory and it probably symbolizes purity and holiness and perfection. And so Jesus rides in on this donkey, or donkey, on this horse, and in it, it says, the one who's sitting on it, John says, is called faithful and true. This is God's nature. He is faithful. He is true. Now think about this that as he enters into this battle of Armageddon, think about the battles in our life. I think oftentimes when I'm going through a difficult season or a storm, I blame God for not being faithful. But really, it's his character, his, his character hasn't changed. It's really me who's changed. It's really me who doubts and fears and thinks of excuses. And I'm the one that's not faithful. God is faithful, but it's me pointing the finger at God for my mistakes and different things. And so one of the things that we can see is just as God is faithful in his second coming, when we are fighting or in the midst of a battle, God is faithful. The psalmist writes in Psalm 33, 4, he says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. God is a God of promises. And I dare you to find somewhere in Scripture where he makes a promise and doesn't keep it. He's faithful. He's covenantal. He keeps up his end of the deal. What we see in Scripture is God is faithful, and it's all the people who are unfaithful. And so God's character is he's going to do what he says he's going to do. He's also true. We see Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus said, I'm the truth. I'm the standard of truth. I'm not deceptive. I don't have false claims. That's what the Antichrist and the demons and sin do, not me. And so by his very character, he is the one that's faithful and true. We also see that John says that, 
It's in um, righteousness that he comes, he judges and makes war. It's by his nature, being perfect and holy and sovereign and in his nature being faithful and true, that he is able to make war and to judge all humanity. And I'm going to tell you, I hear people say, well, that's just not fair. That's just not fair. Well, he is a just God. And so it is up to us, are we going to surrender to Jesus or are we not? So when we talk about being ready, you don't know when Jesus is going to return. You don't know when you're going to breathe your last breath. We have to be ready because Jesus ultimately rules. We, we see this. Um, in this passage, we see this through this battle. The second thing that we see is fully demonstrated in this passage is that Jesus defeats his enemies by his power. It says that he's going to rule with an iron rod, but I want you to see this. One in verse 12 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. All right, so diadems are either crowns in, uh, or either crowns or jewels in a crown. So when he comes, it is showing that and symbolizing what John is saying that every single diadem is a victory over a battle that has been won. So he is victorious. And when he shows up with many diadems, it is to say he reigns. He is victor. He has authority and dignity because he is king. Now think about this. When he first came, in his first coming, the Jews rejected him as the king. And they even mocked him saying, oh, you're the king of the Jews. But when he returns, it will be evident that he actually is the king. He reigns. He is sovereign. He is in control. And the hard reality is that the enemies of God, the enemies of the Lord, do not acknowledge Jesus as king. I, I, I experience this all the time. So many people say, well, I believe he saved me for my sins. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He died on the cross, but I'm not going to surrender my life to Jesus. He's not my king. Man, that's a false pretense for any believer. Man, if we believe him and trust him as savior, we need to trust him as king. The psalmist writes, Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So Jesus rules. And when he returns, he rides in on this horse, having won many, many victories. And I want you to think about this. I read a commentary that kind of alluded to this. I never thought about it this way. Is that every diadem that he, he wears is a battle that's won. And if you really think about it, our lives are one of those diadems. There was a battle that he won. If you are a believer, that Jesus won the battle of sin and death in our life. So we're one of those diadems that he is wearing. Man, this is such a beautiful picture that he conquered my battle and he conquered your battle, the ultimate battle of sin so that we could spend eternity with him and have a relationship with him. Kind of a side note, if you're taking notes, the final victory of Jesus is our ultimate security. So if you're a believer, this final victory that we see is, it should be bringing us great hope, confidence, and assurance, both in, in our salvation and a future hope. 
that Jesus wins. I don't have to get into the weeds and be like, what's going on in this battle? Jesus is the victor. Think about this. Man, this is like so epic. Don't miss this. I, I, I love this. Jesus wins, right? He, uh, the armies come in. From his mouth is this sharp sword. He strikes down all the nations. He rules and says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He is crushing the enemies as you crush grapes for the winepress. Then he summons an angel. Now the angel comes and summons the birds of the air to eat the flesh of the enemies. That's a movie right there, okay? He says, come on down. Eat the flesh of all of these dictators and politicians and captains and the animals and the, the, the people, large and small, mighty, insignificant. Anybody who oppressed me, birds, come eat their flesh. He won the victory. He won the battle. Man, that's sobering to me. And it shows his power in this final victory. But let us not forget, in this, as he's riding in on this horse, he has uh, said, John says that he is clothed with a robe, a robe dipped in blood. Some translations say sprinkled, but we're Baptists, so we won't say that, okay? That's a joke, all right? But he rides in with a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood is it? It's his. It's his blood. If you grew up in church, you probably remember the old hymn, There's Power in the Blood. Man, there's power in the blood. And for our victories... Jesus' blood was shed for us to, to, so that we could defeat sin. He did it in our place. He won the battle over sin and evil. The third note this morning is we see Jesus defeats his enemies by his word. We see that he was called the word of God. We see the same writer that's writing Revelation, John, who wrote in his gospel, the very first verse in the gospel of John. G, um, John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It can actually be translated um, into divine revelation that he is who he says he is. He will always be. He is true. The word is actually logos in the Greek. It really brings this power to say, hey, he is who he is. He is the word by definition. But to take it a step further, from his mouth comes this sharp sword that judges and strikes down the oppressors, these other nations. And then we see at the end of this passage that all the rest were slain by the, word, or the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. So ultimately, what is to be said here is that Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the final word. He is in control and he gets that victory. And so from, the, from the, his nature, from his power, from his mouth speaks victory. That is so true of our lives. And so here's, here's just how I kind of want to end it and throw the invitation onto you. I don't know where you're at in your walk with God and only you and the Lord know that. But in this, this should provide us and give us great hope. And I think for many of us in this room, we put our hope in something else other than God. And so my question is, are you putting your hope in the word of this world 
or the Word of God. This world, man, it, it's speaking a lot of different messages to us. How, how to be happy, how to be successful, how to not feel empty anymore, how to get um, you know, through life, how to do this and that. Man, it might make you happy for a little bit, but it won't sustain you in full joy. But this right here, knowing that Jesus wins the victory, wins the battle and proclaims all of his enemies and, and that he wins, man, that should provide us hope. Not just a hope in a future, but a hope right now, right where you're at. Say, Jesus got, has got this. It just takes you surrendering to that. To say, okay, no matter what I'm going through, Jesus is in control. So this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, man, I want to invite you to do that. Man, it'll be the most life-changing thing. We'll never do anything to embarrass you. But I do want to invite you. You can come down here to the front, talk to me. Or the altar's open. You can come out here and just pray. Maybe there's something just weighing you down. That you're like, man, I feel pretty hopeless in this situation. Give it to Jesus. Know that he's faithful and true. Know that he's powerful. Know that his word, it, it, man, it comes with power and grace and truth. And so as the band leads us, just spend some time responding to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is a hard passage to just walk through and to really grasp. But God, I pray that in this moment, as we respond in song and in worship, that we also respond with our hearts and our minds just to come before you. And you are an incredibly gracious and good God who's merciful and compassionate. And that God is your son, Jesus came this first, the first time and with great grace and forgiveness. God, his second coming will be one with great authority and judgment. And I just pray that right now, before we end this service, that we would prepare our hearts in such a way that if you were to return right now, that we would have great hope and assurance and confidence that we have a relationship with you. So for the individual here that doesn't have a relationship with you, has never given or surrendered their life to you, I pray that today is that day. That you give them boldness to come forward and talk to me or talk to me afterwards. For those of us who are just struggling with a hopeless situation, we just need to give you the hope and let you just speak or give, give you the problems and the battle and let you provide us with hope and peace. I pray that today is that day. We just give that to you. We surrender. God, because you're a good God. You're faithful, God. You're true and you're powerful. Let us live that way. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, let's close and worship and respond to Jesus this morning.